Welcome to Oncology Today, Management of Renal Cell Carcinoma. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. For this program, I met with Dr. Tony Chueri from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. In addition to this interview, there's also a corresponding program featuring Dr. Chueri's slide presentation. To begin, he presented a patient from his practice. This patient, I remember two years ago, came to see a diurosis for hematuria. The diurosis did the workup, called me, there was no chose. And uh, I believe they removed the kidney and I started them on Cosmic 313. It was open two, two and a half years ago. The patient have hypertension, hand, foot, skin reaction, and did not need those reduction, actually. They were all great, too. We managed them. And at cycle seven, day one, uh, you know, just before we obtained imaging and showed the PR. Now, at that time, after the LFTs being fine, um, you know, the LFTs came four times upper limit of normal. We held therapy. And at that time, we're, you know, looking back and forth, uh, you know, decreasing therapy. And the patient said to us, I, I want to stop. I don't want to be on trial. You know, every time you come, this is you have COVID policy. You don't let anyone with me. I just come see you, you know, regular follow up. So we stopped all study treatment. And nine months after we stopped. So seven cycles on, nine months after, I saw the patient recently and 75% shrinkage, they continue to shrink. It's a durable PR of therapy. Could I ask you a couple of questions about the yeah. case? Uh, so I, you mentioned that the patient had had a nephrectomy prior to seeing you in spite of the fact there was metastatic disease. And I'm curious where things are nowadays with uh, uh, nephrectomy. I noticed you had a paper looking at it in patients who got uh, IOs, but, uh, you know, of course, patients who are symptomatic, have pain, that's one thing, but particularly the asymptomatic patients, what's the current thinking about the role of uh, cytoreductive ne nephrectomy? Yeah, no, I think, you know, uh, while in the past we did it more, we do it less now based on the French Carmina study, uh, which showed that cytoreductive nephrectomy with sunitinib versus sunitinib only doesn't have, uh, you know, the OS benefit we hope to. Nevertheless, it's, it's practiced still in a considerable number of patients and it has benefit. Because if you look even at the Garmina patient with one risk factor with limited disease burden probably benefits. So patients that have poor risk, patients that have rapidly growing disease, a lot of disease outside the kidney, brain mat, probably not. But, you know, I worry that there are patients, um, you know, uh, that have limited disease burden uh, that uh, should get the kidney out uh, are not. Like in this patient, despite we counted 15 pulmonary nodules, there was one over one centimeter. And most of them uh, were less than, uh, you know, five millimeter. So, I mean, this is not like someone who has... 15 pulmonary nodule, all of them over one centimeter with liver and bone metastasis. And you know, uh, the Carmina study was discussed with the patient, all of this, and the decision was, you know, to remove uh, the primary that was, uh, you know, a diagnostic. At the same time, this patient was still getting hematuria and needed one-time ER visit 
and borderline transfusion. He ended up not being transfused and continued to have hematuria and clot and being bothered. So the cytoreductive nephrectomy, you can call it half cytoreductive, half palliative if you want. Yeah, that's a very, uh, very good point in terms of the hematuria. But I guess once he had that out, he had, you know, kind of low volume disease. I assume he was asymptomatic. And, you know, it kind of gets into the question of this triplet approach, which, you know, you talked about in your talk, you know, at this point you have, uh, you know, disease-free survival. I'm curious where you see things heading. You know, one of the things that I've heard from uh, investigators over the last couple of years is this question of right now, you know, outside of a trial, how do you decide between ipinevo and TKI-IO? And one of the things I've heard from people, I don't know if this applies to you as well, is that people are more likely to think about a TKI and IO if they're symptomatic or if they have a lot of disease or if they need a response, which this patient at that point really didn't. Is that kind of the way you look at it? And do you think that adding the IO is gonna add anything long-term, particularly related to survival? Yeah, I, I think this is a very, very uh, fair question. There is, uh, you know, no doubt. Um, I think this is quite fair. I think, uh, you know, I, I do think that's in my practice. You have to also remember, uh, Neil, that there are folks still not very comfortable with nevo-ipi, with dual immunotherapy. Some, some in academic centers, some in the community. We tend to send our community, our community doc, a lot of them, you know, most are great oncologists, but there are people that are not comfortable with IOIO. There's a lot of subtleties in treatment. And you can always say a regimen of Pembroaxi, Pembrolan, Cabonevo does have OS benefit and the hazard ratio for PFS response rate, hazard ratio for PFS in every risk category is less than one and I want to use it. And that is totally fine. In my practice, you're right, that's how I use VEGFIO, rapidly progressing, uh, significant disease burden, I need a response. But we're also uh, adopted nevo ip 2 especially if you have sarcomatoid histology. I didn't show you slides here, but you know, five to 10% of patients have sarcomatoid feature. Some of them have extensive sarcomatoid feature. TKI uh, as single agent do not work. And nevo ip have shown a CR rate close to 20% higher than even any VEGFIO. This is my regimen preferred, and there's a biology around it. Patient have infiltrated T cell, increased expression of the antigen presenting machinery, on and on. So I think, you know, this is, this is my practice. It's a bit hard. I think the bigger question, honestly, to be honest with you, is now that we have, in terms of drug frontline, okay, Pembro, Nevo, we have Avilumab, uh, you know, those are the approved ones. Now, Atizo is not approved in renal cell cancer, but it's a drug that has been one of the first immune checkpoint inhibitors. So the big question is, once a patient have tumor progression on a first line or on adjuvant, as a matter of fact, on adjuvant, should a PD-1 or PDL one inhibitor be part of the next line regimen? Like we do sometimes in bevacizumab in ovarian cancer, you know, trastuzumab and HER2 positive, they keep the drug. And I don't know that, but I've seen practices all around me that keep it because the regimen is packaged as one. And a first-line regimen 
is given sometimes fourth line or fifth line. I've seen an Axie Avrimab given sixth, sixth line because that is the data from front line. Maybe, maybe it's true. So that's why we have those two trials, TNIVO2 and CONTACT3. I believe these are very important to the field. Any uh, clinical pearls about using Ipinevo? You know, now you actually have another anti-CTLA-4, which just approved for HCC, tremolumab. So I don't yeah. know how that's going to, I don't know. If, I, I think that's, I think it's being studied in renal. Uh, there's a study with, I think I've seen a study with dervalumab and tremolumab and renal. Is that yeah, so uh, in adjuvant, in Adjuvant, a group in the UK with James Larkin and Tom Powell's right. large group international, are studying it in Adjuvant. That's the one, the Adjuvant study uh, happening in the UK by the name Rampart. But right, you're right, right. Uh, and it's surprising after so much approval for IPI and IPI being around and the CTLA-4 principle was before PD-1, PDL one To see TREMI approved now my question is, is it too little, too late? I don't know. I don't know. And there is no data that shows Tremi is better than Ippi or Ippi better than Tremi. I mean, and I don't, so I don't know. The one thing I wonder about is, is toxicity. One of the things that was interesting about the uh, Derva Tremi HCC trial is they just gave one dose of the Tremi. And I don't know whether they, you know, it's hard to compare the tolerability, but uh, what do you see that's most problematic with ipinevo in these patients? Is it colitis or this patient had LFTs? But what are the problems that you see with anti-CLTA4 that are the most problematic? I think colitis and hepatitis are, um, you know, the two big ones, uh, you know, and they're problematic because um, they could be, if they're on nevoipi, that's easy. But the problem when we have a TKI on board, Nevo, Cabo, Cambrolan, or even on Cosmic 313, Nevo, Ipi, Cabo, which one is which? There are tricks and clinical pearls, you know, stopping the TKI, see what happens, uh, you know, but, but sometimes it is hard. I just had a patient who is on VEGF-IO, and I was quite sure, actually the email came today from the GI doc, I was quite sure that that was the TKI, but the patient was scheduled anyhow for colonoscopy. You know how hard to get it in this day and age. So, so we did it, we were able to get it like in two, three days. And actually they do have ICI colitis, and we would stop mm -hmm. the TKI and the diarrhea would go you know, in 24 hours down by 80%. I'm like, oh yeah, that's the TKI. And actually they exhibited on the biopsies sign of ICI colitis. So sometimes you don't know. I think that is, so they need steroid. Um, that has been the challenge, um, you know, with the colitis and the hepatitis. When you do use a TKI-IO combination off a clinical trial, which one do you usually choose? So uh, I use usually Pembrolan or Cabonivo. You know, uh, if I need a short half-life for the TKI, for whatever reason, patient going to get surgery, maybe Pembroaxi. But Pembrolan and Cabonivo. Pembrolan has the highest response rate, highest CR, but also has the highest rate of favorable patient. 
Carbonivo has the quality of life data, the bone mats data, uh, you know, and has the lowest, uh, you know, favor risk among the doublet. Uh, but when I can use Nivoipi, I use Nivoipi too. When you use uh, Lenvatinib Pembro, what starting dose of Lenvatinib do you use and what do you usually find in terms of how patients tolerate it? Yeah, I, I, I tend to use, uh, there has been few exceptions in people that, you know, I know the blood pressure barely controlled, you know, uh, where I've started at lower, like 14, I usually start at 20 and the vast majority of patients need those reductions. I have one patient, I think, still on 20 in my practice still. Yeah, we see, we hear the same thing from the gynecologic oncologist uh, in terms of endometrial cancer. Let's uh, take a look at your next case. So this is a 61-year-old uh, female, uh, recently diagnosed with metastatic, uh, well, not much recently. Recently, um, you know, um, because I have a practice now for 15 years, so somewhat recently, uh, for therapy initiation for clear cell RCC. She came a second opinion. We started her, you know, uh, probably she's been like a, less than a year uh, on Len Pembro, Len 20. You were just saying that. After pre-cycle, 40% sh shrinkage. Despite if you do the grading, uh, the fatigue is grade two, but when you add all the fatigue grade two, hand foot skin reaction grade two, uh, the fatigue was intolerable. It was not due to anemia, to hypothyroidism. Um, uh, so we, we kept reducing LEN and now it's 10, it's manageable. Uh, no immune-related AE whatsoever. And she continues alternating eight and 10. And I did discuss with her, I saw that patient a week before you contacted me. So I looked at my clinic, et cetera. And I discussed with her that if she remains in, in she has a partial response, I plan to stop the Pembro after two years. So she's been on Pembro, you know, 10, 11 months. Yeah, I was going to ask. I, you I don't know if I will stop. I don't know if I will stop the lymphatinib at that time or not. Usually, uh, you continue, but I, I may actually. You know, I have a patient with brain metastasis uh, coming uh, that I came to me um, for second opinion and decided to stay here uh, on uh, been a year on Pembroland decided to stay in Boston, move to Boston, significant side effects on lymphatinib, but what did not, like we were able to manage it, but at the same time, patients said no. And four months ago, we stopped the lymphatinib, continued Pembro, and they have not progressed. Sometimes it's the TKI, sometimes it's the IO, sometimes it's both, you don't know which, so you have to try. So uh, I'm curious, you know, uh, your first patient who had the LFT abnormalities, you stopped treatment and the patient's still doing well, um, whether you think there's any correlation between IO toxicity or treatment toxicity and treatment benefit? Well, I would say yes. There is data from the time of TKI that usually toxicity, meaning the drug is getting into your system with TKI. So we have the data with hypertension, uh, we have the data with hand foot skin reaction, with uh, uh, Lor Michelson, with IO2, there is data that patients that develop immune re uh, 
related AEs tend to respond better. But as you know, in our practice, we have patient developing immune-related AE that don't respond, and we have patient with zero side effects from immunotherapy that do respond. So it's not a, uh, you know, we've seen it all. So I want to go back and just chat a little, you know, explore a little bit more some of the topics uh, that you got into uh, as you were going through your talk. Uh, first, in terms of adjuvant treatment, and I'm curious right now uh, how you approach this outside a clinical trial setting uh, and um, what your experience has been uh, using uh, Pembro in the adjuvant setting. Well, uh, the experience has been quite favorable. You have to discuss the patient. The data with Pembro on Keynote 564 and the other studies, uh, you have discussed that we have yet no OS benefit. It may never come. I'm confident that things are going to be good because I'm an oncologist, so I'm always, you know, uh, a positive guy here. But, you know, this is not a hazard ratio of one that we expect to get better. There are some signs that things look good. Uh, I follow the eligibility criteria of Keynote 564. That's the easiest um, the easiest thing, and, and that's that's the thing that's in the majority of my my patients. So, uh, of course, we see a uh, you know a, a benefit in a disease-free survival. Hazard ratio last was 0.63. Any thoughts? Uh, further thoughts about all the other negative adjuvant trials going on, and why you still see only one that's really positive. You know, the one is not, I don't think that was the, like the, 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 you know, the unicorn here that, you know, no, I think it's the largest study to begin with. Uh, you know, uh, that's something we need to, we need to emphasize. The eligibility criteria and the risk grouping is different. Uh, it is possible, as we discussed, that the PD-1 strategy is better and more efficacious than a PD-L1 strategy. We've seen that in renal cell cancer in the advanced setting. We've seen that in bladder cancer when the studies were similar. You know, the Pembro and the Atizo experience, as you know, post-chemotherapy in the metastatic setting. We can say it's trial design as much as we want, but, but it's keep repeating itself. Even in the adjuvant setting in bladder, the Atizo study uh, did not work, the Nevo study did work. Like how much we gonna say, you know, accuse trial design, trial design, could be the drug in this setting. Uh, Nevo Ipi, you know, is more toxic than single agent IO. That could have synced the study with Checkmate 914. That study has one arm left not reported of single agent Nevo, uh, six months. That would be a very good, uh, you know, option sometimes if it's positive, because it will decrease the treatment for one from one year to six months, but we have to see, you know, the magnitude of the benefit. And the six months is enough to translate into benefit and into potentially an overall survival benefit. Uh, and then the Prosper study, we really had high hopes, a great study, great effort from investigator. I was part of the study, our center, but 20% of patients don't have clear cell renal cell cancer. And I believe that deep down the, the classification on PROSPER to get on study is a radiologic classification. Even if we end up with a lot of patients with pathologic T3, it's a radiologic classification. 
So that's why we end up with 10% of patients with stage one, PT1. So you add all those things, a trial that is smaller, then you can explain why something perhaps failed. But at the end of the day, these are all hypotheses and the data is the data. So this idea of PD-1 versus PD-L1, you don't hear too much about that in general when, about in checkpoint trials. Um, you mentioned though that some examples though, when you think about the mechanism, does it make it, I mean, my understanding is PD-L1 grabs the ligand, PD-1 hits the receptor. Is that too simple or is that the way you view it? And what, why do you think it would make a difference? I think, you know, with PD-1, you block PD-L1 and PD-L2. There may be a role for that. It could be simply the drugs. These are different drugs. They have different affinity. You know, uh, you know, the epitopes are different that are, you know, that all could be that. It's, you know, not that different from, uh, you know, TKI. At some point, we can't just lump them all, although we do it all the time, as I.O., like the I.O. field, but that's an easy way to think about it. But uh, again, again, especially with the PEMBRO data, I mean, this remains the largest study, so, you know, we can say whatever we want about it. Now, of course, I'm also conflicted as the PI of the study, as you know, uh, but it is the largest, and uh, I would love to have an OS benefit. I think it will be very important because in adjuvant, as you know, Neil, we, uh, in any, it's not just renal or bladder or GU. In any adjuvant, there is a group of patients that is cured with surgery only. Maybe we can identify that group with circulating tumor um, CTDNA, uh, but it's not happening in renal cell. Um, you know, the tumor, the renal cell doesn't shed a lot of cancerous DNA. But in other uh, tumors, like bladder, like colorectal, it's beginning, you know, we're starting to see some very interesting results. I think the future is bright and there will be more personalized medicine coming. Yeah, I was gonna ask you about circulating DNA because I think you were mentioning the uh, Tezo adjuvant trial and I think there was an analysis looking at that based on CT DNA and I, seemed like that made it was kind of more positive when you looked at it that way but so you're saying like liquid biopsy is not very useful in renal cell uh it's less useful today based on the technologies we have and you're right uh, the atezo study in bladder cancer by the way bladder not kidney right right it bladder, was right. analyzed by uh, dr tom powell's showed significant result if you're in those 36% of patients that were CTDNA positive, there's a significant, not just disease-free survival, but an overall survival benefit. In the 67% of patients that were CTDNA positive, the hazard ratio is over one. So that's a great way. We have not done that experiment in renal cell with the same test, but there is preliminary data in renal cell cancer using the same assay used in bladder cancer that work from Fox Chase with, um, uh, you know, uh, close colleagues of uh, uh, ours uh, that show that the sensitivity is less than 50%. The specificity is great, but the sensitivity is like 40, 45%. That's very low. You can't just, you know, that that's very low. So, um, and would that be the uh, clinical staging, the, 
the criteria we came up with intermediate high high m1 ned i i don't know the time that we uh, designed the study neil um there was no ctdna there was not even there barely any discussion about it this is different today for sure let's talk a little bit more about metastatic disease and i'm curious Again, outside a clinical trial setting, how you approach second-line therapy. So second-line therapy in a patient who had ipinevo, second-line therapy in a patient who had TKIIO. Well, um, you know, I think the first question, both of them, my, my, my standard outside clinical trial is a TKI that hasn't been used. So if it's Pembro X, Pembro Len, Cabo, if it's Cabo Nevo, let's say, is... Uh, you know, Axi or Leniverolimus, of course. Uh, Tivazinib is another option, absolutely. Uh, if it's Nivuipi, mostly uh, Cabozantinib I have been uh, using. Based on the, you know, accumulation of, of data, you can use also Tivazinib, um, you know, Exitinib, uh, you know. Uh, but the bigger question, as I said, is do we continue? So let's say you have Nivuipi and there is progression. You know, why not using Cabonivo? I want to continue Nevo. Well, I've seen that in the committee. I have not done it. I have not done it. But that's why we have two trials asking that important concept, because it's possible that we still need to block that PD-1 axis. So uh, I was going to ask you, though, about adjuvant. I, there was an adjuvant Everlimus study also, correct? That is correct. That was presented at the last ASCO meeting, uh, and it was negative. So, yeah, that was uh, sort of, I, I was curious when, when I saw that getting uh, presented. What about non-clear cell RCC, uh, adjuvant therapy there, as well as the treatment of metastatic disease? Anything new in, the, in that regard? Yeah, no, I think, uh, you know, in non-clear cell RCC, uh, of course, in the adjuvant setting, not much. We have to wait for some subgroup analysis, you know, that come um, from studies that involve non-clear cell, although there isn't much when you look at, uh, I think PROSPER presented some subgroup. In metastatic disease, we're seeing activity with VEGF-IO. So Carbonivo has been presented most recently at ESMO-PEMBROLEN response rate over 50%. The problem with non-clear cell RC is the multiple tumors that are included. Uh, so, you, you, you know, we're knowing that, for example, chromophobrenal cell doesn't respond much to IO-based regimen. Then everolimus, you know, seems to be the most active there. Uh, you know, Cabozender is a trial that focused uh, non, um, there was a trial in papillary RCC, non-selected based on the uh, uh, based on the mutations uh, or genetic genomic profile that showed cabozantinib has superior PFS and response rate than sunitinib. That's the PubMed study. Uh, this was published in the Lancet. We also have uh, studies that are ongoing looking at specific MET inhibitors, savolitinib, for example, in MET-dependent uh, and MET-driven Papillary RCC, those 40% of patients that have met alteration, mutations, amplification of the gene, etc. So we are doing some work there. We recently finished single cell sequencing with our group here, with Dr. Van Allen, Hansky, and um, Braun, 
looking and Shukla looking at single cell sequencing in chromophobe RC, which you know it's a rare tumor. And, and we found it to be really, we know why it's a cold tumor. There isn't expression of checkpoint, no infiltration by the T cell. So this tumor, you know, that I, I've given sometimes Nevo AP, especially if there is some sarcomatoid feature, but it should be treated not with immunotherapy. So we, we are scratching the surface of non-clear cell RCC. Anything new in terms of predictors of benefits to IOs? I see that you, you have this uh, omnivore uh, paper on PD-1 expression in circulating tumor cells. Anything helpful at all right now in predict tumor mutation burden, pd one yeah. anything predicting benefit? You know, renal cell is one of the tumor where biomarkers die. Uh, but we have, so the TMB, the pdl one expression, not very useful in practice, but we're looking at specific gene signature at some immunofluorescence marker with my partner, Dr. Sabina Signoretti in the lab, Dr. David Brown, Bill Kaling, Kathy Wu, Elie Van Allen. We're looking at that using high, a lot of genomic data. You, you, you know, one of the things with biomarker, you need a lot of patient. You need really a, a driven hypothesis that's been perhaps um, you're validating. Um, and if the discovery now is with, with some elegant um, newer technologies we're doing, but nothing ready, uh, I think, for prime time. Uh, omnivore, just to just uh, remember these studies, uh, Omnivore was one of several studies that attempted to see if we can start by a PD-1 inhibitor and based on the response, add the CTLA-4 after, because, you know, toxicity two at the same time, more than one. Actually, this, this strategy have not succeeded. Uh, because when you add them, the response rate is way lower than the 42%, which is, or the 40%, which is on nevo AP when you give them concomitant. But the other thing, Neil, despite there are patients that benefited and were spared the CTLA-4, the problem is when you don't have a response and you want to add them, there's a significant attrition rate that the patients are not fit enough anymore to get the second drug or there is a bad progression or whatever reason. So this is not a strategy that we, we suggest. It didn't work out like we want. Maybe you can take another shot at explaining the biology of Belzudafan. Uh, you know, I, I love the diagrams, but I'm not sure I really grasp exactly what the biology is. Could you kind of go through the way you would explain it to a medical student? Uh, yes. Uh, so, so if you think about angiogenesis and if you think about renal cell cancer, really is defined in large part clear cell RC by this alteration in VHL. VHL is altered, there's a mutation, you know, it's a double hit uh, a gene alteration in VHL. Normally, a healthy protein, which we don't have in clear cell RCC, is part of a machinery not only VHL, but VHL is a big part of it, that take some factor, let's say if 2 if 2 is bad, okay, it's the evil, um, that take if 2 and degrade it in the proteasome, which is, you know, kind of like the, you know, the environmental services of the cell in part, okay? But when VHL, you know, there are other factors, but VHL is the one in clear cell RCC. When the VHL protein is truncated, it's not healthy, etc. that proteasome is not working, so HIF2 is overexpressed. It's just 
you know, crime. It's just, you know, happy. And it binds to its partner and lead to the, it's a transcription factor. And the transcription factor are not cell surface. It's very hard to have a drug that goes there into those pockets until recently. And it leads to the transcription of multiple, hundreds of protein and gene, multiple genes that lead to protein. One of them is VEGF. But there are so many other, erythropoietin, et cetera, and a lot of these drive cancer. So um, an idea in the past that Dr. Kalin and several others had that targeting HIF2 should really is ahead of these downstream factor and should lead to a better cancer control. And now we know that that's a valid target. Now. Of course, people like me always want a 100% response rate to get rid of everything, but it's never a perfect uh, story, you know? But it's a story as close to perfect as possible in part led to the Nobel Prize, et cetera. And now we are we have a drug, uh, you know, Benzotifen, and hopefully other drug coming, other HIF2 inhibitor, where we can combine them, they're safe, et cetera. So that's the whole story. Is that medical student like or PhD? No, that was good. That that helped a lot. And your diagrams in the talk were really good too. Is this like a competitive inhibitor for HIF to, HIF HIF? It's a it's a it's a com it's allosteric. Hmm. And uh, the other thing that you were commenting on that I wasn't aware of is uh, with belzutifan or some of the. Uh, toxicity or side effects, the hypoxia, anemia, which makes a lot of sense. But can you talk a little bit about sort of what happens that leads to, you know, anemia, for example, or hypoxia? What's going on? It's by dropping erythropoietin. So that's one of the downstream, by dropping erythropoietin uh, as one of the downstream those genes we, we really uh, talked about. And how, again, how belzotifen you work, it binds to a pocket in HIF2, and so that HIF2 is not dimerized. It's destabilized, it's destabilized that dimerization of HIF2 alpha and HIF1 beta uh, through an allosteric, uh, you know, effect. Uh, so remember the HIF2 to go and do the effect, it has to dimerize with HIF1 beta. I think it's called also AR. ARNT. So when when the when belzotifen is there going into this pocket, it's a small pocket. It's a pass B pocket domain. Uh, you know, very small resolution. It's measured in angstrom. If if two alpha, so if two alpha cannot dimerize and do the bad stuff, you know, it does. And um, I don't know if this is too simple of a interpretation, but. In the sporadic RCC, you know, you see a lot of VHL alterations. Are, these are somatic mutations? In uh, RCC somatic? Yeah, no, yeah. RCC yeah. Spora sporadic. Yeah, sporadic. These are the mutation you see VHL. Yes, they're in the tumor. And in the VHL syndrome, though, that's genetic? They're germline. Germline, you know, but also if you test that tumor, you will find the mutation because it's also sure, germline. both, yeah, yeah, yeah of so course, both, right? Uh, yeah, least... Germline, so you get it from the blood. And do you see that in non-clear cell RCC? You do not. 
you do not. Although there are, see, it's a bit different. So you do not, that's the easy answer, but the, a bit more complex answer is that there are cases labeled non-clear cell, like the unclassified renal cell, where we do genomic analysis and you find a VHL mutation. It's like, well, this should be maybe relabeled clear cell, but it's not like that on the histology. So sometimes the histology and the molecular analysis does not fit 100%, though most of the time it fits very well. Any uh, myths or misperceptions you see in the community about the management of renal cell? I know you see a lot of second opinions of patients who've been managed in the community. Uh, anything that you see that maybe uh, would be worth commenting on? I am very impressed with how the community has embraced renal cell therapies. I mean, we used to say, hey, an evil epi, we shouldn't give it in the community. Although knowing the epi in renal cell is one mg per kg is the lower dose. But I'm so impressed by the community of oncologists around us, for example, get a lot of referral, New England, New York, doing a great, great job. Most of the time, the second opinion is just for uh, assurance, uh, sometimes driven by the family or for clinical trial when patient has been on several line of therapy or for a frontline trial to establish care. So if we have a trial, the patient sometimes stays. You know, I, I think I am really impressed with the community and how we were able to work with our community oncologists together, how, how much they really learned about the TKI and immunotherapy. So only only good thing, I haven't had anything. Sometimes, you know, sometimes there is subtleties in the pathology or sometimes the pathology is it becomes a bit different because we do have the expertise. We have kidney cancer pathologist, but overall, it's always a, has been a positive experience. Any thoughts about where we might be heading in the future, where we might be in three to five years with renal cell? I like the HIF2 axis. I think some of the data are going to be uh, positive. Uh, it's going to be part of combination. I think there is effort in uh, cellular therapy. This is not just renal cell, you know, CAR-T. Uh, NK CAR, uh, CAR NK, etc., are coming. Some of it will be tested in renal cell cancer. We have several efforts here. Uh, let's see how biomarkers, uh, you know, are going to pan out the genomic signature and the non-genomic signature um, overall. I think these are the very important, uh, you know, ones. I think there are uh, some uh, drugs that may be optimized like uh, an Excel uh, inhibitor, for example. Uh, you know, one thing that unfortunately failed, but that's the first attempt, is drugs that target the metabolic uh, pathway, the glutaminase inhibitor. There was one glutaminase inhibitor. We had a lot of hope for that because renal cell really is a metabolic tumor. Uh, there was the study I presented a bit, Neil, um, CABO plus um, uh, the, the glutaminase inhibitor versus CABO. Uh, that study, unfortunately, um, you know, did not uh, yield positive result. But it shouldn't be that we shouldn't focus on tumor metabolism in renal cell cancer. It's just the first attempt. So the future remains to me a positive future for patients with kidney cancer. You mentioned CAR T and cellular therapy. What kind of targets are they, you thinking about? You know, CD70 uh, is the one that comes to mind, expressed in renal cell cancer. I know 
there are folks exploring that. There are also some attempts looking at CD70 plus, you know, uh, you know, CA9 together by specific, uh, which could be even, you know, more specific for renal cell cancer. So nothing goes on the other, uh, you know, normal tissue. And, you know, I think remain to be seen. A lot of the work was in preclinical now, and it's moving to clinic. This concludes our program. Special thanks to Dr. Chueri, and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for Oncology Today.